www.kgp.net. Psalm 107 says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they've seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. This verse is brought to you by Craig and Jana Reeves of Sea Eagle Market, 2149 Boundary Street in Beaufort. Sea Eagle Market offers everything from fresh fish and shellfish available for your inspection daily to complete catered events and now dine-in as well. The Reeves family has been offering local seafood for over 40 years, and they can be reached at 521-5090 or online at seaeaglemarket.com. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be with us. And if you have particular questions that you would like to uh, ask, uh, you can call us directly at 843 843- 525-1859 or you can uh, if you like uh, just email us here directly into the studio the email address is TBL that stands for the Bible line TBL at WAGP.net uh, so Rick let's go ahead and get started I know we've had a number of uh, email questions that have come in and we'll go from there alright very good uh, yes uh, Johnny from uh, Shelby North Carolina just finished listening to part five of sharing your faith and would like your response to the man in Boston who replied he once went to the Catholic Church. Also, um, uh, they, well, that's basically what we'd right. like to know. Yeah, well, um, let me just say for those who are new to our ministry, we have a radio ministry called Search the Scriptures. And at Search the Scriptures are not only the broadcasts that you hear Uh, Monday through Friday, uh, but also uh, different courses that we offer. And so we have a course called the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's basically 33 hours of study uh, with some electives in there. And one of the electives is on uh, how to share your faith. I did that a number of years ago, and a lot of people have really benefited from that course uh, if you're listening to me, maybe you've never introduced anyone to Christ. That would be a great course to take. I hope to actually redo it in 2018, if the Lord will allow me to do that. So we will see how that unfolds. But yes, the man did receive Christ. And thanks for asking. I appreciate that. Um, let's go ahead and we'll jump into the next question. Okay. Uh, Nicole from Aurora, Illinois says, we're in the process of closing on a home. 
While walking through the home, I came across different books and home decor that suggest the owner is possibly into witchcraft or something similar. Should we perform some sort of home blessing upon moving in? Uh, what would that look like? Is there anything we need to be wary of in this situation? Well, it's a, it's a fair question. Um, sometimes people misunderstand a text that comes from Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Matthew 12 is the chapter where Israel, in an official sense, uh, rejects Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, it's, uh, it's unfortunate what they do. Uh, you um, see Jesus preaching faithfully uh, from city to city to city and uh, doing miracles, uh, proving really that he is the Messiah of Israel. And uh, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed them. And, and the crowds were saying, this can't be the son of David, can he? Uh, because one of the titles for Messiah in the Old Testament is son of David. And of course, the Pharisees said, no, no, this is not the son of David. Uh, what Jesus is doing, he's doing by Satan. And of course, Jesus shows how illogical their response is. Satan doesn't work against himself. And uh, through that whole process at the uh, end of the dialogue, he says this in Matthew twelve forty three. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which it came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man has become worse than the first. That is the way it will be with this evil generation. So Jesus is really speaking about the people of Israel, how they had basically cleaned up their house, uh, but they didn't really repent of their sin. And so uh, illustrating the consequences that rejected revelation brings yourself into a dangerous state. The, the word house here is not a reference to a physical house, but to your house. Uh, sometimes the Bible describes our body as a house, so to speak. Uh, sometimes it describes it as a tent. Uh, but in either case, um, Jesus is describing the people of Israel that it's not enough to clean up on the outside. There has to be an internal change that takes place. Now, lay that aside. Uh, people ask sometimes, is it possible for a demon to inhabit my house? Well, if you invite the demon in, uh, if you are engaged in uh, demonic activity, then yes, I would say you can have the presence of demons in such a place. You know, there's a big movement in our country. I think they call themselves ghost hunters or something. And they, they travel across the country and they go to quote unquote haunted houses and they have these supernatural experiences. Well, the demonic world is often happy to accommodate those who want to seek the demonic world. And God speaks against communication with the dead. And that's really what some of these so-called ghost hunters are doing. Uh, but listen, uh, unless, you know, you've been engaged in some kind of evil activity where you've invited the demonic realm in, you don't have anything to worry about concerning your house. Now, there are some instances, I, and I think they're legitimate, of uh, people who have had objects in their house that have been used in idolatry. And Paul tells us that just like the Lord is present in a special way around the table of the Lord, 
he uses the same illustration to say that demonic activity can be present around uh, objects that have been committed to idolatry. So one, make sure your house is cleansed of all objects and, and you just use, you commit your house to the glory of God and you don't have to fear. You don't have to walk around in some paranoia like who knows who could have lived here 50 years ago. You dedicate your home to the Lord. You walk with God. You obey God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It's endless what you could come up with. But if you're not actively involved in the occult or have family members who are involved in the occult and inviting the demonic into that realm, then you really have nothing to fear. Go ahead and buy your house and enjoy it. So, All right. good eight, question. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our first caller of the day would like to know if when you fast, should you focus on one thing or can you fast and pray about many things? Well, certainly God will often uh, lay on your heart a special fast. And what might be useful to you would be to uh, go to my series on Daniel. I have addressed the subject of fasting from time to time. The great thing about expository preaching is when you preach through entire books of the Bible, sooner or later, you're going to address topics, topics that you might not otherwise um, plan to preach on, but things that, you know, you just end up doing. And so uh, when you study the scriptures in a holistic way, you're going to sooner or later uh, deal with a number of texts. And so it was my sermon on Daniel 10, 1 through 21 that I uh, dealt with in some way, a rather in-depth study on the subject of fasting. And certainly there are times in Israel's history when God burdened the people of God to fast for a particular reason. Uh, Maybe they were coming under attack from an enemy. Maybe it was out of repentance for God. Even unbelievers like those in Nineveh fast and pray as it's declared by the king and the greatest revival in human history takes place. But oftentimes God puts it in your heart to pray for a specific thing. You're burdened maybe for your marriage, maybe for uh, a prodigal son or daughter, or maybe for revival. I don't know what God has put in your heart to do and he would have you to fast and pray, but I don't think it's limited by any respect to just some specific event uh, in your life. There are, there are many, um, just regular things that you can fast for. And so many Christians fast, you know, on a a weekly basis and they make it just part of uh, what they do as a Christian. It might be a meal a week, might be a a day a week where they have a 24 hour fast where maybe they eat breakfast one morning and they don't eat again until breakfast the next morning and they just have water. So, um, You know, you might want to listen to some of the messages that I have on fasting where I I deal with all the various reasons given in the Bible, but it doesn't have to be for one specific event. Jesus assumes that we will fast. He he doesn't say uh, if you fast in the Sermon on the Mount, but when you fast. So he assumes that God's people will fast. Now, someone in fact recently said to me, you know, I have health issues or whatever. And I said, look, God understands that. Um, So if you are, you know, suffering physically and you're unable to fast, uh, then, you know, God understands that. There are some things that people are limited to do. It's like God commands us to work. 
and he talks about people who won't work, shouldn't eat. But there he's dealing with people not um, who uh, are unable to work, but people who could work and won't. So, you know, you interpret the scripture within a holistic framework that God gives and it will help you to understand his purposes and plans for your life. But I've got a very extended message in my series in Daniel. And if you're listening to our revelation series that are airing, the book of Daniel would be a great book to study along with it. In fact, in most seminaries, Daniel revelation are taught as a pair uh, because Daniel, especially the ninth chapter, but along with the other kingdom passages where he speaks of the various kingdoms of the world ending with a final kingdom of, uh, from which the Antichrist will come, it gives you the prophetic schematic to understand some of the events in Revelation, and that can be very useful. All right, good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right, Tim from Bridgeport, Connecticut writes, I've heard preachers use the term Shekinah glory in reference to God's presence. But I've heard some say that term comes from the female Babylonian goddess, that the Jews brought this term back from their days in captivity. Would you please comment on this? Well, you know, I had a man call me uh, recently, and he was kind of bent out of shape because we were uh, raising money to put a translation of the Bible into a people group that do not have any written scripture. And so Community Bible Church uh, took on three Old Testament books and uh, in next year in 2018, we'll take on three New Testament books. And he said, well, I don't trust Wycliffe Bible translators. And I said, well, what's your problem with them? He said, well, you know, they use the term Allah in some of their translations for God. And I said, well, that's, that's not a problem. I said, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And so um, in various languages of the world, there are different words that are translated for God. And for instance, all the Russian languages of the world and uh, those uh, languages, the word for God is bog. Uh, is that an evil word? Because it's not God. In Greek, it's thaos. In um, Hebrew, it's Adonai and a number of various words. Well, ever before... Um, Islam came into the scene in the late 6th century and Muhammad ever was born onto this planet. The word Allah was used in uh, Aramaic languages, Arabic languages, to dis- is the term for God. And so born again Arab Christians often refer to God as Allah. But the Allah of the Bible, if you speak those languages that translate Adonai as Allah, is very different from the Allah of the Quran, two totally different views. So when you think about the Shekinah, uh, it is actually a word that doesn't appear in the Bible at all. It's kind of like the word Trinity. Uh, are you opposed to the word Trinity? I, I hope not. It's a biblical concept that there's one God who exists in three persons, three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so the term Shekinah was used ever before the time of the Babylonian deportation where the Jewish people, the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, which was composed of the two southern tribes, were carried away into Babylon. And so the Babylonian influence in terms of the term Shekinah didn't come from from them. Now, you know, other cultures may use the term. Uh, It's like um, I was recently on a commenting on a... um, 
an article that was on Fox uh, News and it was referenced. They said they, they found the um, the the birth city of the Messiah, of the disciples of the Messiah, Philip and Andrew and, and John. And uh, and actually the, the the place they found was the was a place called Bethsaida. But surprisingly, you would have thought there would have been a little better scholarship. There's two Bethsaida's. In the Bible, just like there are two Bethlehems in the Bible and two Antiochs in the Bible. So I commented on that and some guy went on this rant. Well, you can't trust the Bible. And uh, I don't usually comment on blogs, but I couldn't help but uh, do it. And, you know, and of course, you know, when you see some new news uh, catch that, you know, oh, they found the city where the disciples lived. Well, that's intriguing to people, but it's not it's not the same beside and someone who even just moderately knows their Bible would know that. Well, this guy went on this rant and saying, well, you know, you can't trust the Bible. I mean, think about the flood story recorded in Genesis. There's hundreds of flood stories in all kinds of cultures. And again, I would ask, which came first, the chicken or the egg? The original flood story is found in the Bible. But you would expect after the Tower of Babel, when God confused the languages and separated them according to various language groups across the world, that the story, the historical story, I'm not using it loosely, but the historical facts that came from Noah's family were continued in various cultures and given enough time. Uh, some of the flood stories are very wild and crazy and different from the one in the Bible. And then some of them parallel the biblical account almost perfectly. So the term Shekinah is actually a transliteration of a Hebrew word, meaning the one who dwells. And it's not found in scripture, but a a root of the word is Shekan is. And then there's another word, Mishkan, and the two are bled together. Mishkan is the Hebrew word for for tabernacle. But uh, the term was used to describe the divine presence of God. Uh, in Exodus 13, let me just turn there for a moment. So if you spoke to a, an Orthodox Jew today and you asked them what the Shekinah was, they'd say, well, that's, that's when God would, in a very concerted way, choose to uh, dwell among us uh, visibly. And so as the people left Israel and left Egypt and were on their way to the promised land, God promised that he would be with them and that he would guide them. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, this is Exodus 13, 17, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near, near, for God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. The sons of Israel went up in a martial army from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for he had made the sons of Israel, Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Uh, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So there is a visible expression of God tabernacling with them. What's very interesting is if you were to find an equivalent Hebrew, uh, Greek word of the Hebrew that's used in the Old Testament, you would go to John 1 14. 
and the word became flesh. The word, of course, is identified in the opening verses of John's prologue and the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt. Uh, If you have the NASB, it's footnoted and it's the word tabernacled. The word became flesh in the, the verb form. He tabernacled among us. So there is the Shekinah, so to speak, or you, what you might call the Shekinah glory. In fact, Jesus is called the glory of God, such that he can say to Philip later in the same gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. That was a visible expression of the invisible God as Paul describes him in Colossians. And what's kind of interesting to me is that when Jesus comes back, he will come back in, with clouds. Uh, Daniel the prophet speaks of that. Jesus uh, echoes that truth in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. They'll see the Son of Man coming back with the clouds in glory. And Paul also reminds us um, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He's going to come back uh, not only with clouds, but with fire. So the very expressions of God's Shekinah, of God's presence in the Old Testament will be seen when Jesus actually comes at his second coming. So, so it's not a negative word. It's not a negative term. It's a catch word. And it's a deriver, it derives from the Hebrew, from two different Hebrew words that are bled together. And so, um, and the word is actually found in the Aramaic translation of the Bible. It's kind of like the word rapture. People say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, yes, it is. It's in the Latin Bible. And the Latin Bible was the principal uh, text of uh, translation of scripture that was used for almost a thousand years in the church. It was virtually the only translation that people had, which made it somewhat limited because a lot of people were dependent on the scholar to be able to read the Bible form. It was not the only one, but it was the primary one and the primary one that the body of Christ used. And that's why so many terms that we use even today actually come from the Latin Bible. And so caught up is repto, reptora, and we get our word rapture from it. And so from the uh, Targum, which is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, you get the word Shekinah. It's kind of a transliterated word into their language. And so again, which came first, the chicken or the egg? We had, had it ever before the pagan Babylonians did. So should we jettison it? No more than Wycliffe should Genesis the uh, an Arab an Arab Arab term for God Allah. Uh, But we're not talking about the same Allah, obviously, that's found in the Quran. Good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. This uh, question came in a couple weeks ago, but we couldn't get to it till now, so it is a bit dated. Uh, Julie from Beaufort writes, this is not a question as much as something I'd like you to comment on. This message was posted on Facebook by a friend in Israel today, again, two weeks ago, who is a Jewish rabbi. I found it very interesting in light of all we've been discussing regarding the end times and wanted to pass it along. This is from Aaron Shefir, who is an Israeli tour guide. He writes, Tonight begins Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. This year is the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Jerusalem after 1897 years of Roman, Byzantine, Arab, Crusader, Ottoman, and British occupation. Through it all, Jews in exile around the world stop three times a day to face the ruin of the temple and pray that God would return us to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. At our wedding, we break a glass to remind us 
that our joy isn't complete with the temple in ruins. Uh, we end our Passover Seder with next year in Jerusalem. We fast four times a year to commemorate the destruction of the temple. Who would have believed that 50 years after we've been liberated uh, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, that the temple would still not be built? This is a disgrace, an embarrassment to the Jewish people before God and the world. We don't lack the money or the military might. All we lack is the will to fulfill our destiny. Now is the time. Well, it is the time in God's time. Uh, God's timing is perfect. And but what you write, Julie, is really important from this Facebook page and that it expresses the desire of the Jewish people to have their temple there on the top of Mount Moriah, where indeed there is also a very pagan temple that is there. Some think on the exact spot. Some say it's not actually on the exact spot, but adjacent to it. All I know is that for certain, the temple is going to be rebuilt. How do I know that? Because Daniel said it would be rebuilt. And Jesus quotes the prophet Daniel as an event way out in the future, reminding us that it will be in place during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. I mentioned at the beginning of our broadcast today that the book of Daniel is extremely helpful to understanding Revelation because it gives you the prophetic schematic of events that are still out in the future. And so Daniel 9, if you, if you aren't able to listen to the whole series on Daniel, at least listen to the four messages I did out of Daniel 9. And the early verses really set the stage for what follows in the end of the chapter. But at the end of the chapter, you find what's called the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. And it describes 70 weeks, so to speak, of Israel's history. Now, the word week can be used in different ways in the Bible. We typically in our Western minds think of the term week only in terms of a, a week of days. But in the Hebrew Bible, they had not only a week of days, but a week of years. So he's dealing with 77s or 490 years. And he describes what happens in the first 69 weeks. And it was fulfilled to the letter right down to the day that Messiah uh, would present himself uh, as Israel's promised one, the prophet that Moses wrote about, the Messiah that God prophesied of, uh, that he would present himself. And so the prophecy, it's one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Bible. It predicts from one particular starting date, the exact day that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday, and it comes right to the exact day. And then after that, the Bible says Messiah will be cut off. And just a matter of days after that, Jesus was crucified and God fulfilled all the um, uh, feasts of the uh, of the spring uh, that every Jew celebrates every year. The fall festival uh, um, festivals are yet to be fulfilled at the second coming of, of Jesus. But without getting into the weeds too deep here. The fact is, is that the 70th week, a seven year period, it's known as the great tribulation period. And right in the dead center, right in the middle point of that seven years on the 1260th day of the seventh year span, the Antichrist will go into the temple and present himself to be God. He'll actually set up an idol in the temple that will display itself in a supernatural way. 
because there'll be demons working behind them. And uh, it's what Jesus referred to in quoting the prophet Daniel as the abomination of desolation. It's going to happen in a rebuilt temple. Uh, we're going to Israel. We're planning to anyway in May of 18 if the rapture doesn't happen. In fact, tomorrow night, Wednesday night at Community Bible Church, we'll have really kind of our final informational meeting for those who are interested in going. Uh, we just contracted with two larger buses, so we actually have about 10 seats left. So if you're interested tomorrow night, I know sometimes this um, Bible line is rebroadcast. Sometimes I have a funeral or I'm away speaking somewhere and they'll rebroadcast an old Bible line. But on September the 19th uh, or 20th, which is tomorrow, uh, 2017, we'll have an informational meeting at 810. If you're unable to physically attend, you can live stream it at 810 because we have people from various states that are planning to go. We'll not only answer their questions in preparation for the trip, but we'll also answer questions for those who would like to consider going. But one of the things we're going to do in the May 2018 trip is we're going to go to the Temple Institute. And the Temple Institute is an organization that has reproduced all of the temple furniture, including the Golden Menorah. The Golden Menorah, which you can see just uh, it's displayed publicly in this um, bulletproof um, probably nuclear bomb proof glass like you've never seen in your life, a solid gold menorah. They've produced right down to the golden menorah, all of the temple furniture and all of the priestly garments needed uh, to perform the sacrifices in the Old Testament uh, temple. Uh, the Jews, Orthodox Jews primarily recognize that there is a need uh, to have a rebuilt temple because they understand that the sacrifices that man can offer, like, oh, I'm going to be a better person and things like that, can never deal with the problem of sin. God says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so Orthodox Jews who take a plain reading of Scripture recognize they need to have a temple to do what God's instructed them to do. What they don't see is that the once and for all sacrifice replaced that. But nonetheless, they're going to rebuild the temple and it might not happen until the beginning of the 70th week. It wouldn't take all that long to rebuild, but we do know it will be in place. And in the middle of that seven year period known as the tribulation, the Antichrist will go in and make himself out to be God. And uh, all hell will literally break loose on the earth when that event happens. Uh, the tribulation becomes super great tribulation after that midpoint event. But one of the things that will also happen during that final seven years in human history is there's going to be a revival like we've never seen led by the Jewish people. Uh, we're beginning this Sunday, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in Revelation 6, there are six seals that are given and then there's kind of a parenthesis in the seventh chapter. And then the eighth chapter opens with the seventh seal. And then there's uh, six more seals that are given. And then there's another parenthesis of numerous chapters. In that case, not one chapter, but several chapters. And then the um, uh, after uh, the, the seventh, trail, seventh seal opens the seven trumpets and the first six are given and then there's a parenthesis and then the seventh trumpet comes and there's a real super brief parenthesis and the seven bowl judgments comes. But one of the functions 
of this period of time is to bring the Jewish people to genuine faith. They are going to recognize that Jesus is indeed their Messiah. God will use the heartache of the tribulation and the preaching of the 144,000 who have been supernaturally protected by God. No one will be able to hurt them. They'll have a special seal upon themselves in which God will use uh, that seal to uh, protect them. And so God often uses affliction to bring about repentance. Hosea says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That's what's going to happen to Israel in that final seven year period. They'll look on him whom they have pierced and they're going to believe. So God's not done with the Jewish people. He is going to bring the greatest revival in history, not just for the Jewish people, but for the Gentile people, people who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and power are going to hear it during the time of the great tribulation period. You know, we see the events that are going on in our world today. Just take natural disasters as an example. Uh, People just get really, you know, uptight and, you know, I, I was thinking this morning, I was praying for the people in the Caribbean and, you know, they've got a, now another category five uh, coming down upon them and virtually all the structures on some of those Caribbean islands are gone unless you own a, a concrete bunker. They've got all these loose objects, really very few places for the people to go. Uh, they're going to squish them into as many shelters as they still have left. And God uses turmoil like that to cause people to pray. I heard testimony after testimony after testimony on Fox and CNN of people saying, well, we're we're just praying and asking God to help us and to protect us. And well, that's going to be one of the uh, effects of the coming tribulation period. Now, some people will be hardened in their heart. And instead of reaching out in prayer to God, Uh, they're going to harden their hearts towards the living God and they're just going to continue in their sin. But a great multitude that no one will be able to count uh, are going to come to faith during that time. So Julie, be encouraged. God's not done with the Jewish people. He is going to bring the greatest revival the world has ever seen through the Jewish people Uh, Not only in bringing Jewish people to faith, but through 144,000 sealed who will not be beheaded or hurt in any way. And they'll preach the gospel to the world. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. Thanks for Um, calling. How can we help? I have a question. Um, In your sermon this week, you had touched on the end times and God is going to destroy the world with fire and then rebuild a new or build a new heaven and a new earth. That's right. Um, and after the sermon, it got me thinking, and I heard one of the programs that we that you air on um, WAGP where many pastors and theologians are now starting to reinterpret what that text means by actually burning the earth with fire and no longer taking it as a literal God is going to burn the earth with fire. He's just going to remake the earth. I was wondering if you had heard anything about this or if you had any comments on it. Well, I appreciate the question. Uh, Randy Elkhorn, who wrote a book on heaven, uh, it's somewhat of a controversial book. 
I'm not saying that people can't benefit by studying it, but he actually takes a lot of the passages that deal with the millennial reign of Christ because of certain theological presuppositions that he holds on to and he applies them to the future of heaven and earth. You see, there are a whole great number of now evangelicals who now believe there is no future for Israel, that God is done with the nation of Israel, that the church has become the new Israel. And so a lot of the kingdom passages like in Isaiah, in the latter chapters of Isaiah that deal with the millennial reign of Messiah, Uh, when Jesus will literally rule and reign for a thousand years and has really nothing to do with heaven are being applied to heaven. And unfortunately, even some um, who believe God has a future for Israel has been influenced by that. But we need to think, you know, like Randy Alcorn, for instance, in his book on heaven, and I didn't actually name him on the sermon, but since you bring bring up the situation on Sunday, I mentioned one popular evangelical who wrote a book on heaven, talks about the folks that we're studying here in Revelation chapter 5, and they say that those are saints in heaven praying for the saints for the Christian uh, Christians on the earth. Now, the Roman Catholics use the same verse to say that we should pray to the saints in heaven who in turn take our prayers to the Father. But that's really not what is happening. This is a future event. The church has been raptured. If you're a born-again Christian, you're actually in this group, and these are God's people praying for God's will to be accomplished. But clearly, I don't think there is going to be just some makeover, as Randy Elkhorn says, and unfortunately, that a few, uh, even dispensational, by dispensational, I mean that we make a distinction between Israel and the church, that even some dispensational um, People who believe there's a future for Israel think, well, God's just going to fix up the old planet. No, he's not. In fact, remember we're a lost person. Just think of it in these terms. Where does a lost person go today when he dies? He goes to a place that's known as Hades. And where is Hades physically located? In the earth, the Bible says. And so God is actually going to remove Hades and he's going to cast it into another place into the lake of fire. So that's reason enough uh, to say that God's not going to do some physical makeover of the present. But Paul, uh, Peter says this in second Peter three, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust saying, where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Their argument is God's not really involved in time and space and he never really has been. And so you Christians talk about Jesus coming back and this just is pie in the sky theology and there's no truth to it. Peter says in response for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of the Lord, the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So God, yes, he intervened one in his creation, something that the scoffers of this day deny they they say well god didn't create the world evolution made the world by itself you know two sparks and out of space who who created the two sparks i don't know they were just out there and they slammed together and out of the glue into the zoo that became you and here we are today walking on this planet 
And then foolish Christians who are trying to bleed science with the Bible, who are theistic evolutionists, say, well, we acknowledge that this world is billions of years old and God used the process of evolution to make the world. No, now we have death before the fall and millions and millions and millions of years of death when the Bible is very clear that death entered into the world through sin after Adam and Eve were created. So one, Peter says they forget how one, God made the world and two, that God flooded the world with water, that God intervened with a worldwide judgment, not some localized flood and destroyed the world with water. But he says in second Peter three, seven, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly man. But do not let this one fact escape your notice that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens, please underscore this, will pass away. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth in its works will be burned up. And of course he then applies it to us as God does throughout the word of God, that whenever he speaks prophetically, it's not just to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like Jesus Christ in light of that, here's how we should live. Um, When I come to revelation 21, very interesting. You have the great white throne judgment. I saw a great white throne at the end of chapter 20 in him being Jesus who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. So somewhere out in outer space, there is the great white throne judgment. You've seen artistic renderings of this, you know, where there's a throne in outer space. I don't know exactly how God's going to pull that off, but heaven and earth fled away. And then after the judgment is over, we read in Revelation, and of course, Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. So all that are in Hades, which is in the center of the earth, are thrown in the lake of fire. And then he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And again, that's totally fitting with what Peter said. I didn't read it all, but since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, destroyed by burning. And the elements, listen, will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Every vestige of sin that has polluted the current heavens and earth are going to be gone. So the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. So God is very clear. And that's what we have here in Revelation 21.1, a new heaven and a new earth. So this is not some remake. This is all brand new. And of course, um, it's uh, difficult for the evolutionists, the theistic evolutionists. They think, well, God needed millions and billions of years to create what we have today. He didn't need any time at all. He could have done it in six seconds. Now he chose to do it in six days, as Moses tells us. And Moses believed in a literal six day creation. He gives us divine commentary on it in Exodus 20. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why you are to work six days. He says in the Decalogue, 
Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20, in one day to rest. You follow God's pattern that he made in the creation of the world. Um, but God's not going to take any time at all when he makes the new heaven and the new earth. He's going to just speak it all into existence and it's done. So I don't buy the theory of some remake. And that comes out of confusion on Randy's part. Look, I'm, I, I love Randy. He's a brother in Christ. You can spend eternity with him. But he'll get some of these things straightened out someday I, uh, when he meets the Lord. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got another caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, my question is, Hebrews one fourteen says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to guard those who will inherit salvation? So even though I have free will, God knows who will be saved and who will not be saved. So does that scripture refer to angels guarding people before they have been born again? Well, it's a good question. Um, they're called ministering servants. So the Malachs, which is the Hebrew word for angel, which means a messenger, the angelos, the angeloi, which again is the Greek word. It means a messenger. They're God's messengers. Uh, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for who? For the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Remember, there are three dimensions to our salvation that are described in the Bible. I have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. We usually refer to that as justification. I am being saved right now today from the power of sin as I grow in Christ. That is the process of sanctification. But someday I will in the future be saved from the very presence of sin. When I get a glorified body, that's the third dimension to our salvation. We call that glorification. Uh, Paul uses the same terminology. You know, people say, well, I've been saved. So what does Paul mean at the end of Romans five, when he makes this statement, uh, he talks about all that God has done for us in Christ. And he said, if we were enemies for, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall future, we shall be saved. Oh, Paul, I thought we have been saved. We have from the penalty, but not from the presence. That's future. And that's so he is looking to those who are born again, to those who are secure, who have an inheritance in heaven. Uh, It's guaranteed. It's pledged by the spirit of God himself, who's given us our down payment that what God started, he will finish, that they are here to serve us. Now, they are attending angels, so to speak. We use the term guardian angels loosely um, because it doesn't mean that they guard us from all harm because they don't. And the Bible does not teach that. But they are nonetheless attending angels. In fact, Jesus said that there are angels, plural, that attend uh, children. And we'll talk about that some here in the future. Anyway, um, It has nothing to do with your free will. It has everything to do with the fact that angels are now serving us. And someday, while angels in the present are above us, uh, and we, for a period of time, have been made lower than the angels, that's going to reverse someday. And we'll actually somehow, don't ask me how, but God tells me it's true. In 1 Corinthians, we'll be involved in judging angels in their service that they give to God's people. Just like you will face a judgment in the future for the service that you do. It has nothing to do with whether or not you get to heaven. It's not a judgment for salvation. 
if you've been born again, but there will be a judgment for God's people for service. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Very good. Our next caller would like you to recommend a book that addresses the authenticity of the Bible. How about How to Prove the Bible is True by Carl Brogy? Uh, it's a simple one. Uh, depends how in-depth you want to get. It's really a booklet. You can get it at Amazon. It's in the bookstore, too, at Community Bible Church. Uh, or you can request it at Search the Scriptures uh, by calling the toll-free number. Go to our website, searchthescriptures.org. But I give five proofs for the uniqueness of the Bible. If you want to do a very in-depth study on inspiration and infallibility and inerrancy, three very important words, you might want to take my course on bibliology. I teach it really on a master's seminary level. So it's very in-depth. There are actually over 500 pages on the course on bibliology uh, for you to take if that's something that would be of interest to you. Uh, And I go through great detail right down to, I have one whole section on supposed contradictions and mistakes and errors in the Bible. So um, there's a lot of books. It depends what your focus is. Is it inspiration? Is it infallibility? There's volumes. If you want to be able to respond in a simple way that will satisfy 99.9% of the people you meet, then just uh, get my little booklet. If you want to go into a lot more study that will, in one place, address all the various issues, then take my course in bibliology. And if you want to focus on a given area, inspiration, there's actually 10 views of inspiration. So when a man says, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, he may not believe in it in the way that you believe in the Bible as being inspired. He may believe it's inspired like Shakespeare. So there's a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing that come under the label of Protestant and they have a very different view of inspiration. So um, if you take the course in bibliology with all the various sections, um, there will be some references and some helps that if you want to do a study just on one particular area in a book that would be helpful, then you'll be directed accordingly. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Neil is listening to us in Texas and would like you to comment on a commentary on Proverbs that you might recommend. There's a commentary on Proverbs. It's put out, I think it's called the Geneva series, but the book is on Proverbs. It's by Charles Bridges. It was written in the 19th century. It's very, very good. Uh, Very, very helpful. So Charles Bridges is one of the better commentaries I've read on Proverbs and that I have in my library. I have many, but I think that's one of the better ones. Now, I should say uh, there are actually two editions to Charles Bridges' book on Proverbs. There's a very abbreviated edition, which uh, is the one you might end up just quickly buying, uh, that it has about, it's about half the size. This is a full-blown edition that Charles Bridges makes, uh, wrote in the 19th century. So that, that, that would be the one I would uh, suggest to you. I think you'd find it very, very helpful, and uh, I, I would probably start there. So um, I hope that helps. Um, Rick, uh, the questions have been pouring in here. And if you would like to ask a question this morning, you can do so locally. The number is 525-1859 or toll free at 877-WAGP980. Or you can reach us directly here at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Let's go to the next question. All right. A caller says she appreciates your teaching on Revelation. And a few weeks ago, You were talking about how God is not done with Israel. 
How is it that some believe he is? Well, their assumption that he is, and by the way, I'm going to address this issue as we work through Revelation. I will actually address this issue. It will, it will just fit appropriately when we come to chapter 7. Now, as I've been working on the exegesis of Revelation, I, I suspect that I'm going to preach at least five sermons in the sixth chapter and a couple of sermons in the seventh chapter. But it would fit naturally to address this subject when we come to Revelation 7. And it really comes from a misunderstanding of God's promises to Israel. There are certainly promises that are given in the Bible that are conditional in nature. And some of the promises that God gave to Israel were conditional, like the Mosaic Covenant uh, that you find at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. If you do this, you'll live, you'll be blessed in this way. If you disobey, here's what's going to happen to you. Those are conditional promises that God makes dependent on your expression of faith. There are some promises that are unconditional in nature, and that's certainly seen in the Abrahamic covenant. And so we will study that in depth when we work through Revelation 7. But for right now, it's based on a presupposition that actually comes from St. Augustine, that the Roman Catholic Church later adopted as their theology. Interestingly, Augustine's an interesting fellow. He is adopted by both Catholics and Protestants. I don't think the Catholic Church was officially in place at that point as we would describe it today, though they say, of course, the first pope is Peter. But nonetheless, um, Augustine said some very hurtful, hurtful things about the nation of Israel. I'm always embarrassed when I go into... Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Israel, uh, because they put out there in a very prominent way the quotes of people like uh, St. Augustine and the things that he said about the Jewish people that were very hateful, uh, just, I think, just downright anti-Semitic. Now, I'm not here to judge his heart, but I just think they're hateful. And I, I, I have a friend who's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. In fact, he, he just wrote me a couple of days ago and we've been dialoguing and he's actually uh, reading a book called Mere Christianity and I'm praying for his conversion. He's considered one of the foremost experts on the Holocaust who's alive and actually helped to develop a lot of the exhibits in Yad Vashem. When we go to Israel, he will give us a personal tour because um, you'll see things through a man's eyes that's knowledgeable in pictures where he doesn't just say, well, here's this group of people. He knows their names. Um, but bottom line is that there are presuppositions that Augustine had concerning the church. This is like too important a question. If you want to call back uh, next Tuesday, we'll pick it up here and we'll address this question because it's an important question and it needs our attention, but we will again address it specifically as we work through the Revelation. And if you don't have a church home, I invite you this Sunday as we begin in, uh, our series on the four horsemen of the apocalypse as we work through chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John, recorded by John, and for us, his bond servants. I hope you have a good day as you walk with Jesus Christ. <music> 